Welcome to All World Online. All World Online is a direct-to-audio, genre-bending web serial created and read by me, Lindsay Sparks, author of Hidden Worlds and Twisted Myths, including the Echo Trilogy and the Atlantis Legacy. Did you know that All World Online is set in the same fictional universe as the Atlantis Legacy? The tie-in may seem distant at first, but as the serial goes on, fans of the Atlantis Legacy will spot some fun Easter eggs. We're back with a new adventure in the world of All World Online. All World Online Vertigo is an All World Online Origins adventure. In the country of the blind, the one-eyed man is... Insane? Jane questions the very nature of reality after experiencing a series of discordant memories and disorienting vertigo spells. At every turn, the world seems to be rewriting itself, and she is the only one aware of what's happening. Is Jane losing her mind, or is she, alone, finally able to see the truth? A new player enters the game in Vertigo. And now, let's get into the story. One. Today is my birthday, and I'm not entirely sure how old I'm turning. It's weird because I know what year I was born, and I know what year it is, but I can't make the difference between those two years match the number in my head. 40. That's the number in my head. I should be turning 40 today. But I'm not. According to math, which is notably more reliable than my memory or whatever feelings I'm having, I'm turning 39. The problem with turning 39 today is that I distinctly remember turning 39 last year. I haven't told anybody that, and I'm not planning to. My daughter, Emma, sits on my lap, clapping her hands and chanting, Cake! 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 I give her a squeeze, earning a high-pitched squeal, and snuffle her cheek. My loved ones fill the dining room around us, some sitting at the table with me, some standing, all ushering in the start of my 40th year with a boisterous round of happy birthday. My younger brothers part in the doorway from the kitchen, dodging the purple and green balloons taped to the corners of the doorframe as they make way for my mom. She sways into the dining room, a birthday cake held out like an offering to the gods, The rich chocolate frosting glistens with a sprinkling of golden glitter, and two candles burn with delicate flames atop the cake, a three and a nine. Both waxy numerals are about as tall as my thumb and decorated with multicolored polka dots. Thirty-nine, not forty. My mom sets the cake down on a table that has seen countless birthdays and looks at with enough dents and scratches to warrant being dropped through a wood chipper rather than dropped off at the Salvation Army. The birthday song comes to a close and my friends and family chant, Make a wish! Make a wish! Make a wish! I suck in a deep breath, hug Emma close as I crane my neck to reach her head, and silently wish for my memory to get its shit together. And then I blow, carefully to keep the puff of air short and sweet. Only a toddler likes spittle on their cake, and I'm not planning on handing the whole thing over to Emma. My loved ones cheer as the tiny flames sputter out, and Emma strikes. She manages to dig four fingers into the side of the cake before I can catch her wrist. Hey! 
I pull her hand away, but the damage has been done. Four lines have been clawed into the thick layer of frosting, the mark of my little monster. Emma stuffs her fingers into her mouth, smearing chocolate frosting from the bottom of her nose to the tip of her chin. Mmm, yummy! A laugh cracks my stern expression, and I shake my head. All right, Munchkin, let's get you strapped in, I say as I push my chair back and stand. I plop her down in the booster seat strapped to the chair adjacent to mine at the head of the table. I fasten her in, and when I straighten, my mom offers me a chef's knife. She winks at me. Birthday girl does the honors. I swipe the knife by the handle before Emma can grab it with her frosting-free hand, then sidestep back to my place and pluck the two oversized candles from the top of the chocolate masterpiece. I set the candles on the edge of the cake plate and sink the knife into the cake. The layer of frosting is thick, and the cake itself is dense, offering greater resistance. My mouth is already watering by the time the blade of the knife clinks against the plate. Every year, my best friend, Kara, attempts to one-up herself by making me a richer, more decadent chocolate cake than the previous year. So far, she has yet to disappoint, and I have high hopes for this year's offering. This looks amazing, I tell Kara as she reaches around Emma to set a stack of purple paper plates beside the cake. She adds a plastic cup filled with a bouquet of disposable forks. Kara barks a laugh. With the amount of chocolate I melted down, it should make you cry tears of joy, she says, tickling Emma's neck with her fingertips. Emma giggles and swipes at Kara with her slimy frosting hand, and Kara shrieks and backpedals. I snort a laugh as I make a second cut, then slide the knife under the wedge and carefully pry it free. It's a laughably large piece of sugary deliciousness, and it is all mine. My four-year-old Miles leans forward on his elbows, practically drooling as he tracks the slow progress of the generous slice from cake plate to paper plate. I gently tip the wedge of cake on its side as I place it on the top plate in the stack. I call dibs on that piece, Miles proclaims, his heart in his eyes. No can do, little guy, I tell him, lifting the plate off the stack and setting it on the table in front of me. First slice goes to the birthday girl. Kara adds, settling in behind his chair. Them's the rules. Miles pouts for half a second, but his mournful gaze evaporates as he watches the knife slice through the cake again. I want a gigantamongous piece, he says, getting to his knees on the chair so he can lean forward even more. You're not getting any piece until you sit in the chair the right way, my mom says, moving in to stand behind Emma's chair, her eyebrows raised for emphasis. But down, Miles! He complies with a huff. I shift the top plate with its smaller piece of cake off the stack and set it on the table in front of Miles. He looks heartbroken, and he opens his mouth to complain that the piece is too small. You can always have more, I tell him before he can start. But if you whine, you won't get any. Miles grins, placated by the promise of more, and reaches for the cup of plastic forks. His arm isn't quite long enough, and Kara helps him out, plucking a fork free and planting it in his piece of cake. There you go, kid. Dig in. He does. We've got the big 4-0 next year, Kara says. I freeze mid-cut, a shiver trailing down my spine. 
Deja vu. When I look at Kara, she's staring forlornly at the candles discarded on the edge of the cake plate. We've done this before. This exact tableau is imprinted in my mind. Miles, Kara, me. This has happened before. I have the strong suspicion that she's about to say something about turning 21. I almost can't believe it, Kara says, leaning forward, her forearms resting on the back of Miles's chair. She shakes her head. 40. Us. I'd swear we just went on my 21 run a couple years ago. I stare at Kara, paralyzed by my prediction coming true. Kara reaches out to give my arm a conciliatory rub, her face twisted into a compassionate pout. Horrifying, I know. She sighs and releases my arm, looking skyward. I blink and force a chuckle. Yeah, I can't believe it, I say, playing off my unease as general shock about aging. I slice through the cake, shift the piece to a plate, then grab my wine glass and lift it to my lips. I take a gulp that is too large to be enjoyable and choke as I swallow. How did we get so old? I ask, my eyes watering as I cough to clear my throat. Kara pats my back roughly and I lock eyes with her, my whole body jolting with each thump. That's not helping, I say deadpan. Kara shrugs, the corner of her mouth twitching. Hey, she says, holding her hands up defensively. I may or may not have just saved your life. Sure you did. I return to my cake cutting. Once everyone who wants dessert has it, I push the plate with the remaining third of my birthday cake toward the center of the table and out of my children's reach and push back my chair to stand once more. I make eye contact with Emma, then with Miles. I will be right back, I say. I look pointedly at my ridiculously large slice of chocolatey heaven, then meet my children's eyes again. Don't even think about it. But the gears are turning behind Emma's eyes, and I know the potency of my warning will fade exponentially with each passing second I'm gone. Whoever first said, out of sight, out of mind, definitely had a two-year-old. I study Emma through narrowed eyes. Her focus is on my piece of cake. It's a purple elephant, and now that I've made it forbidden, it's all she can think about. Not willing to risk my precious slice of heaven, I pick up my plate and carry it into the empty kitchen. I open the door to the cabinet that houses the dishes and place the paper plate with my prize on top of the stack of dinner plates, then shut it away. I retreat down the hallway, past the powder room, and through my bedroom to the attached bathroom. It's nothing fancy, just a toilet, a single sink vanity, and a tub shower combo. The finishes have been updated several times over since the bungalow was first built over a century ago, but the bathroom itself is far from new. I shut the door and pull my phone out of my back pocket before I sit on the toilet. I scroll through my photos, finding last year's birthday celebration. As I skim through the photos, I can't help but note how similar the scene is. The balloons are a different color, but are pinned up in the same places. Emma is in the high chair instead of the booster seat, which is propping miles higher in his chair, but they're sitting in the same places. All the same people are present. John still isn't. His vacant chair at the far end of the table sits like a John-shaped black hole, sucking the joy from the room. That was my first birthday since cancer took him. I close my eyes, grief an iron fist gripping my heart. Slow inhale. I exhale shakily and open my eyes. I continue scrolling through the photos. There it is. The cake. 
I pinch and spread my fingers on the screen, enlarging the photo to zoom in on the cake, on the candles, on the three-inch-tall wax castings of what looks a hell of a lot like a three and a nine. I squint, huddling over the phone like I'm about to proclaim, it's my precious. The world tilts to the side, then corrects itself, overcorrects itself. Suddenly my brain is on a -a tilt-a-whirl and I'm so dizzy I have to set my phone down on the floor and brace my hand against the wall to prevent myself from toppling off the toilet. I squeeze my eyes shut, waiting for, hoping for, the dizzy spell to pass. The sense that I'm on unsteady ground slowly abates and I crack one eye open, confirming that the bathroom has stabilized. I open my other eye and blow out a breath. No bru- Bleh. No more booze for you, Janie, I mutter under my breath, silently adding a promise to be a better human and take it easy on the alcohol for a bit. I didn't think I had that much to drink, but I'm old and have too much responsibility to be giving myself the spins. Ugh, or hangovers. I'm already dreading the hangover, and yet, other than the dizzy spell, I barely even feel tipsy. Sighing, I finish on the pot and retrieve my phone from the floor, The photo of last year's birthday cake is still open, zoomed in on the candles. On second look, I can clearly tell the cake is topped with a waxy three and eight. I shake my head, tuck my phone into my back pocket, and wash my hands. I quickly twist my hair into a loose bun and wipe faint smudges of fallen mascara from under my eyes. For a moment, I stare at myself in the mirror. I wear makeup so infrequently now, my made-up face looks strange to my own eyes. On my way back to the party, I stop in the kitchen to chug a glass of water, then retrieve my slice of cake from the cabinet. I really don't feel drunk, but I'm sure the cake will soak up whatever wine is still sloshing around in my belly. I carry my cake into the dining room and quietly slip through the crowd to the sliding glass door, flashing smiles to a few people as I pass them. I retreat to the peace and quiet of the back deck, setting my plate on the railing as I gaze out into the moonlit backyard. A faint breeze shifts the small hairs that have escaped from my bun, tickling the nape of my neck. Darkness shadows the woods lining the fence that surrounds the backyard, but I can hear leaves rustling in the wind, and louder, sharper noises of nocturnal critters moving about. I pick up my plastic fork and take a frosting-laden bite of cake. Rich, chocolatey goodness explodes on my tongue, and I close my eyes, not bothering to suppress my moan. Damn, that's good cake. I open my eyes, lick my lips, and greedily take another bite. At the sound of the slider opening behind me, I glance over my shoulder. Miles steps out onto the deck and throws his whole body into the act of pulling the door shut again. Chocolate frosting surrounds his mouth, smudged as though he tried to wipe his face clean but gave up when he realized the effort required. Mommy, I'm sleepy, he says rubbing his eyes as he drags his feet over the wood boards on his way to me. I pick up my plate and move to one of the outdoor rockers. They had been a Mother's Day gift from the kids. <laughs> from John. Along with the promise to build a fire pit for us to sit around during summer nights, each of us rocking a kid to sleep on our laps. He never had the chance to build the fire pit. I sit in the rocker and set my plate on the small teak table to the chair's left, then open my arms to welcome Miles. He falls into me, pulled by my maternal gravity. I hoist him onto my lap and he curls into a ball against me, soothing my aching heart 
the way only he and Emma can. I kiss the top of his blonde head, breathing him in, then tuck his head under my chin. You don't want any more cake? He shakes his head, nestling in. I'm sleepy, he repeats. Me too, bud. I hold him a little tighter, knowing one day I'll blink and he won't want to snuggle with me like this anymore. Me too. Two. Sheets of rain slap against my windshield and my wipers race back and forth. Squawk thump. Squawk thump. Valiantly fighting an endless battle against the downpour. I lean forward, crowding the steering wheel and squinting as I peer through the obscured glass. The glare from the streetlights along Front Street only compounds the visibility issue. At least the late hour means the road is practically abandoned. I flick on my right turn signal as I approach the intersection ahead. I'll be home in five minutes and then I can pour myself a glass of wine and sink into the tub, soaking away the stink of raw meat that always lingers on my skin after a day on the block. When John and I opened Sullivan's Fine Meats, it was with the intention of splitting the meat cutting and admin duties. For three years, we alternated days like clockwork. Thursdays and Saturdays had been my floor days, and I had spent Wednesdays, Fridays, and Sundays in the back office. Our weekends were on Mondays and Tuesdays when the shop was closed. Then Miles came along and I switched to admin full-time, splitting my workdays between the shop and home offices. Now, there isn't a day that I don't don my scabbard for at least part of the day, and more often than not, I watch the sun rise and fall from Sullivan's fine meats. If it wasn't for my mom watching the kids all day, I would probably have to close the store. For good. Yes, I have been actively searching for a floor manager for the past few months, but skilled meat cutters have a habit of finding their home and digging in, and I'm not looking to train another newbie. I already have more half-trained meat cutters than I know what to do with. What I need is an old-timer, a whipcracker, a professional. I guide the car around the corner, going slow and making damn sure nobody is crossing the crosswalk. Sullivan's Fine Meats is located in Polsbo's historic downtown. A single quarter-mile stretch of road that curves around the marina, lined by a string of quaint shops and restaurants, primed to lure in the slew of tourists who flock to our little town every summer. Front Street curves at the southern end, leading into narrow residential streets. Our house sits four blocks south of Front Street, a restored historic home sandwiched between a couple of modern farmhouse new builds. Without warning, the world tilts first to one side, then the other. Oh, shit. I slam on the brakes and grip the steering wheel tightly as I ride the wave of vertigo. It crashes into me, over me, through me. It takes me on a ride that leaves me disoriented and nauseated, and I cling to the wheel to keep it from sweeping me away. Bang! The car jolts forward and my head slams back against the headrest. This time the motion isn't all in my mind. Some asshole just ran into me. God damn it! I slap my palm against the top of the steering wheel. Fuck! My heart hammers in my chest, and outrage heats my skin. There have to be some statistics about accidents happening when you're literally two minutes from home, when your feet hurt and all you want is to crawl into bed and to go to sleep, and it really is the worst possible time. Maybe it's karma. I have to wonder what I did to earn this today. I rub the right side of my neck, where I can already feel the crick forming. I'll bet anything that by morning, I'll only be able to move my head to the left. 
Motherfucker, I hiss. I do not have time to deal with a whiplash or whatever pansy-ass injury this asshole just gave me. I peer in the rearview mirror at the truck behind me. I can just make out the asshole in question, pushing his door open and stepping out into the rain. For a moment, a long moment, I consider sitting in my car, nice and dry, and letting this dickwad get soaked. But I'm hot, body hot and angry hot, and the pouring rain will be good for me. I draw air in through my nose, filling my lungs completely, then blow it out, slow and controlled. John's voice ghosts through my mind. Water off your back, Janie. Don't make this into a bigger deal than it is. Water off your back, I mutter, my hand on the door handle. I shake my head, laughing through my nose. You can't ever just let me be angry, can you? I look at the shadowed passenger seat, but John isn't there. In his place is the canvas tote bearing a washworn logo for the shop I use instead of a purse. I sigh and turn back to the car door, pulling up the hood of my coat before I push it open. The soles of my boots slap against the standing water on the asphalt as I set them down, and with a groan, I stand and step out into the rain. Steam rises from my skin almost immediately. I glance at the historic homes lining the left side of the road. Liberty Bay is a dark, yawning void off to the right of the road. I look at the approaching man. Maybe I should have been worried about getting out of my car in the dark of night to face down some strange guy. I eye the man as he stops a safe distance away. He is large, muscular, and his face is mostly obscured by the hood of his raincoat. His size should intimidate me, but I'm tired and so very close to home, and I don't have the spare energy to be worried or afraid. Besides, this is my street. My driveway is just down the road, tucked around the corner behind the house. I know every single person who lives on this road, and I have little doubt that a couple of looky-loos are peeking out through their front windows right now, attention drawn by the sound of the crash or the immobile headlights from the pair of stalled vehicles. Maybe they don't have the clearest view, but they're watching. They're always watching. For once, I'm glad of my nosy neighbors. I'm so sorry, the asshole says, hanging back a few steps, his hands stuffed into the pockets of his coat. The light from a nearby street lamp hits his face, and I can't help but note that he's easy on the eyes. Well, lots of assholes are. It's been a long day, he says, and I was texting my babysitter. He pulls a hand from his pocket and holds it up like he's warding off an admonishment, not that I was about to give one. I'm an idiot. You don't want my sob story. He draws his wallet from the back pocket of his jeans. Here. He flips the bifold open, pulls out a business card, and takes a step forward, stretching out his arm to extend the card toward me while still keeping his distance. How considerate. Maybe he's not such an asshole. I mentally downgrade him to a turd ball. I reach for his offering and pluck the card from his fingers. I glance down and angle it toward the street lamp. Thanks. I skim the writing, black on thick, clean white cardstock. Max? I study his face to see if he's annoyed by my shortening of Maxwell, but he seems unperturbed. According to his business card, Maxwell Hart is a financial advisor. I frown, considering his profession. Maybe I could guilt him into looking over the shop's finances. Is that even something a financial planner would do? My mom's always on me about outsourcing more of, well, everything. Lately, she's been bugging me about burning the candle at both ends. 
and expressing how worried she is that I'm going to wear myself down and make myself sick. I've tried pointing out that my candle really only has one end. All I do is work. But then she accuses me of deflecting. I stuff Max's business card into my coat pocket. I want to be home right now. I want to check on the kids and drink a glass of wine and take a bath and curl up in bed. I want to wake up and discover this was all a dream. I'll forget about it by the time I take my first sip of coffee. I glance at my rear bumper and the shattered taillight, then refocus on the man responsible for ruining my night. Listen, I say, crossing my arms over my chest and angling my back toward the wind. Can I just take a picture of your license and proof of insurance and call you in the morning? I gaze longingly at my driver's side door. I need to get home to my kids. A gust of wind changes the direction of the rain, and I hunch my shoulders, turning my face away. Oh, yeah, of course, Max says, turning back toward his truck. I'll grab it, he says over his shoulder. One sec. He jogs back to his truck. I duck into my car to fish my wallet out of my bag and to sift through the pile of old service receipts in the glove box for up-to-date proof of coverage. By the time I reemerge, insurance card and driver's license in hand, Max is crouching at my back bumper, brow furrowed as he examines the damage. Here you go, I say, holding out my cards as I approach. Max looks up, and his eyebrows raise. I really am sorry about this, he says, taking my cards and handing me his own license and proof of insurance. I turn my back to the rain and pull my phone from my coat pocket to snap a couple of pictures before tucking it back in, away from the rain. I cross my arms, stuffing my hands into the warmth under my armpits, license, insurance card, and all. I study the damage while I wait for Max to get his phone out and take photos of my cards. My gaze wanders over the rest of the Camry, and I chew on the inside of my cheek. Besides the inconvenience, this might end up being a blessing in disguise— I've had this car for something like 10 years. It really is time for something new. Half the cars on the road now are the self-driving variety. I read that the price on those has come down a lot in the last year, making them comparable to a conventional car. Maybe I'll look into one. I narrow my eyes as a niggling memory worms its way into the forefront of my mind. In my mind's eye, I see myself at the car dealership, exchanging a silent grin and nod with John as we decide the Camry is exactly the car we need for our new family, because in the memory, I am seven months pregnant with Miles. But that doesn't make any sense. Miles just turned four. That would mean I've had the Camry for a little over four years, which is impossible. I have definitely had this car for at least twice as long. The world lurches and suddenly it's spinning all around me. Or maybe I'm spinning? I stumble forward and lean a hand on the trunk of my car. Whoa, Max exclaims, catching my elbow to help study me. Are you okay? My fingers curl around his forearm and I squeeze my eyes shut, willing the vertigo to pass. Yeah, I... I suck in a deep breath and the dizziness gradually lessens. Another deep breath and I'm feeling steady enough to risk cracking one eye open. The world is stable. I blink away the wavy lines blurring the outermost edges of my vision and shake my head. I'm fine, I say, releasing Max's forearm. He maintains his grip on my elbow. I stand a little straighter and peer up at him, gratitude curving my lips into a tight smile. Just overtired, I think. A self-deprecating laugh rattles around in my ribcage. Just rocking that single mom life. 
I cringe as soon as the words are out of my mouth. It sounds like I'm fishing for sympathy or a pat on the back. A, you're doing great, when I know I'm not. My kids deserve so much more from me. They deserve more of me. It's not lost on me that I may have been throwing myself into work to help myself cope with John's death, to avoid grieving him. It's past time to pull on my big girl pants and face my demons. My kids are down to one parent. I owe it to them to be the best mom I can be. I get it, Max says, a warm chuckle rumbling in his chest. I've got a little one at home, too. When he smiles, a dimple forms on his left cheek. Just the one dimple. It's utterly charming. This whole single parent thing isn't exactly a walk in the park, is it? His eyes are understanding, his smile friendly. He releases my elbow and reaches out with his other hand. It takes me a moment to realize he is not so much reaching for me as handing back my license and insurance card. I accept the cards and stuff them into my coat pocket, at the same time scanning the ground for his. I dropped them during my fit, and I spot them in a pothole-turned-pond off to my right. Crap, I'm sorry, I say as I crouch down to fish the cards out of the puddle. His license is fine, but his insurance card is a soggy mess. A hairdryer might help, I offer with an apologetic smile as I hand him his cards. Max laughs. I'm sure it would, if I had one. He takes his cards and tucks them into his coat pocket. Listen, can I give you a ride home? His eyes lock with mine, his gaze earnest, concerned. I'm sure nobody would mind if you pulled your car over and parked here for the night. Can't have you crashing into anyone else tonight. I guffaw, my eyes bulging in amused outrage. You crashed into me, I remind him. Although now that I'm thinking through what actually happened, the dizzy spell while I was driving that forced me to slam on the brakes... I can't help but wonder who's actually at fault for the accident. I'm 99% sure it's him, but that 1% of doubt feels disproportionately large. It's not necessary. I twist my upper body and point with my chin toward the street illuminated by the Camry's headlights. I just live up the street, I tell him. When I turn back to Max and see the stubborn set of his jaw, I relent. But if it's going to hang over your head, you're welcome to follow me home and make sure I don't run anyone over on the way. It's a deal, Max says, and flashes that charming one-dimple smile again. I feel the faintest flutter of attraction as the long dormant butterflies in my belly rouse. I frown to myself, surprised, and here I thought they were dead and gone. I take a step backward toward my car. I'll just, um, get going then. Flustered, I stumble over my words. I turn away from Max and retreat into my car. Get your shit together, Jane, I mutter as I press the start button. I turn on my seat warmer and turn up the heater until hot air blasts from the vents, all the while watching Max in my rear view mirror. I tuck his business card into my wallet, then shift the car into drive. I drive home, Max following close behind me. I pull into the driveway, turn off my car, then walk back to the sidewalk where Max's truck idles. He rolls down his window as I approach. I stop a few feet from his driver's side door and hunch my shoulders, crossing my arms over my chest. Max rests his arm on his door and leans into the opening. The rain has let up a little, but I'm still jonesing for a bath, now more than ever. I'm assuming the number on your card works, I say. Max nods. That's why I gave it to you. I figured, I say. 
So I'll give you a call first thing in the morning and we can figure out when to meet for coffee. Max interrupts, hijacking my plan making. Taken aback, I start to shake my head, but wince when my stiff neck twinges with pain. You don't know me, I know, Max says before I can refuse, but I'm new in town and you're the first person I've met who hasn't asked me for free money advice. It's refreshing. I plaster a wooden smile on my face. Oh, yeah? I say, pretending I hadn't been thinking that exact thing a little bit ago. Yeah. He laughs under his breath and shakes his head. Give me a ring in the morning. If you don't want to meet up, no worries. And there's that charming smile again. Just throwing it out there. I uncross my arms and stuff my hands into my coat pockets. I'll think about it, I promise. Okay, so... I slowly back toward the lawn behind me. I'll call you in the morning. I repeat like an idiot. Before I can say anything else stupid, I turn and stride across the lawn toward the paved walkway that leads to the front porch. The front door opens as I set my boot on the bottom step of the porch. My mom stands in the doorway, tying the belt of her fuzzy lilac bathrobe. Her focus shifts past me to the truck still idling in the road in front of the house. I turn, raising a hand to wave goodbye to Max, and when I face my mom again, curiosity glitters in her eyes. Behind me, the truck's engine roars louder as Max drives away. My mom steps back, opening the door further to let me into the house. Who's that? She asks as I pass her. Nobody, I say, but the tension at the corners of my mouth, teasing a smile, suggests otherwise. I bend over in the entryway to untie my boots. They reek, a byproduct of the splatters of meat juice that no amount of spraying with pressurized, steaming hot water can wash away. Just the guy who hit my car. What? My mom squawks. I glance at her as I struggle with the crushed knot on my left boot. She swings the front door open wide and pokes her head through the doorway to peer out at my car. Not that she can see much of it in the darkness. A moment later, she shuts the door, locks the deadbolt, and turns toward me, fists planted on her hips. You got in an accident? Her pitch rises a full octave on the last word. I finally get the laces unknotted and remove my left boot. My right boot is much easier, and I open the front door and set them on the covered porch to air out. I didn't get in an accident, I tell my mom. I pass her on my way to the living room and into the kitchen. I got hit, I correct her. I set my bag on the small square table of the banquette in the corner of the room, then add, the guy rear-ended me right after I turned onto Fjord Drive. My mom's slippers make a soft shh-shh-shh on the worn hardwood floor as she follows me. I smile to myself and turn away from her, making a beeline for the half-full bottle of wine sitting on the counter beside the fridge. It's a red, leftover from the party last night. I pull a glass out of the cabinet, then reach in for another as I glance at my mom over my shoulder, my eyebrows raised. She rolls her eyes, nods, and holds out her hand as if to say, Hurry up! And I uncork the bottle and pour wine into the first glass. He wants to meet for coffee! My mom leans her hip against the edge of the counter. He hit your car, and then he asked you out on a date? I don't know, Mom, I say, pouring wine into the second glass, then topping up the first. He rear-ended me, and... And now he wants to rear-end you? My mom says, shimmying her shoulders and wiggling her eyebrows suggestively. I close my eyes and groan. What are you, twelve? 
My mom snorts a laugh and snags a glass of wine. There are leftovers in the fridge if you're hungry, she says as she heads for the banquette. I made meatloaf. I'm good, I say, grabbing the other glass and following her to the table. I scoot onto the opposite bench from my mom. I got a sandwich from the Philly truck. Phil's Phillies? My mom asks. She raises her wine and sniffs, wrinkles her nose, then takes a sip. Her nose stays wrinkled. Didn't you get food poisoning from one of their sandwiches? First of all, I say, holding up one finger, I got food poisoning from one of their sandwiches that I left out all day. I raise a second finger. Secondly, I feel the need to point out that you've brought this up at least a dozen times since it happened. My mom shifts on the bench like a bird rustling its feathers, her palms pressed down on the table, her thumb and forefingers forming a triangle around the base of her wine glass. Well, I'm sorry if I worry a little too much about your well-being, but I'm your mom. It's my job to worry about you. Her words strike a chord within me, and I stare down at the ruby red wine in my glass. I know she's joking, but I also know she's not. She does worry about me, far more than she worries about herself. Her hyper-focus on my life choices used to bug me, but then I had kids. Then I understood the gut-nodding anxiety that came with a new baby in lieu of an owner's manual. Then I experienced firsthand how that anxiety compounded with each passing month, as the worry that something might happen to my child would strike me with crippling fear in the darkest hours of the night. You okay over there, Janie? What? I asked, my focus snapping to her, my lips parted and my brow furrowed. My mom narrows her eyes. She knows something is wrong. I start to shake my head but wince at the spasm on the right side of my neck. I don't know, mom, I say, rubbing my stiff neck. I've been getting these weird dizzy spells, like vertigo. I run a fingertip up and down the stem of my wine glass, once again staring down at the red liquid. It's only happened a few times, but I sigh. I don't know. It's probably nothing. My mom is quiet for a long time, long enough that her silence draws its own kind of attention. I sneak a peek at her. She's frowning, her eyes filled with concern. It's not nothing if you're telling me about it. Maybe I should have kept my mouth shut then. I might have said that out loud. You should give Dr. Bronson a call in the morning, my mom says. If there's something to be worried about, she'll let you know. She finishes with a definitive nod, like it's all settled. I take a sip of wine and nod obediently. Just to be safe, she adds. Yeah, okay, Mom. She glances past me toward the kids' rooms down the hallway. You have to take care of yourself, Janie, she says, her tone somber. Those kids have already lost one parent, and I'm too old to raise them on my own. They need you in tip-top shape. I close my eyes and slowly inhale through my nose. Deep breath in, deep breath out. I said I would do it, Mom. I say and open my eyes, locking gazes with her. No guilt trip required. My mom reaches across the table, covering my hand with hers. Not a guilt trip, sweetie. She offers me a gentle smile. Just the truth. Three. It's probably just a blood sugar issue, Dr. Bronson says, her voice carrying over the Camry's speakers. I watch the rivulets of rain snake down the windshield as I sit warm and cozy in my idling car. The blood work will give us a better picture of what's going on. I nod, despite knowing the doctor can't see me, and tap my thumbs against the lower rim of the steering wheel. 
From my parking spot on this side of the street, I can see Kara through the bakery's display window across the street, moving around the display case to arrange the pastries and treats just so. The lab closes at five, Dr. Bronson adds. If you can get there before noon, they should be able to process your blood work before the end of the day. I'll take an early lunch, I promise. It's Wednesday, which tends to be our slowest day of the week. I usually let the boys open so I can catch up on admin work in the back office, but today I woke up exhausted and slept in a couple extra hours. If rolling out of bed at seven instead of five even qualifies as sleeping in. Wonderful, Dr. Bronson says. I'll transfer you to the front desk so you can make an appointment with Maya. Early next week, remember. I don't think you're in imminent danger, but I don't want to let this condition linger undiagnosed for too long. Early next week, I parrot, bobbing my head in another unnecessary nod. I make my appointment for the coming Monday, when the shop is closed, then hang up and turn off the car. I grab my bag from the passenger seat, settling the strap on my shoulder, and push open the door. I pull up the hood of my coat and duck my head to shield my face from the rain as I hurry down the street to Sullivan's Fine Meats. The bell over the door jingles cheerfully as I enter, and both Kent and Mark look up from their cutting at two of the three blocks behind the service counter, my arrival stalling their animated conversation. The display case is still only partially filled with cuts of meat, as is usual for this early hour. By ten, it will be packed with steaks and roasts and chicken parts, and by four, it will be decently picked over, perks of being the only meat shop in town. Our product might be pricier than what folks can find at the grocery store up the street, but our customers appreciate the value of buzzwords like locally sourced, free-range, hormone-free, sustainable, and organic. And they know that any cut of meat that comes from Sullivan's Fine Meats isn't just paying lip service to those ideals. I personally visit each of our suppliers every quarter to ensure the quality and animal welfare standards meet our criteria. Our reputation depends on my diligence. Morning, boys, I say as I approach the counter. Boss, Mark says with a nod. Kent lifts his chin in greeting. How's it hanging, Jane? It's still not, I say, passing between their blocks on my way to the back. I push through the pair of swinging doors on either end of the pass-through dishwashing area, and once I'm in the back hallway, I set my bag on the rack beside the bulletin board displaying this month's shift and delivery schedules. I swap my coat for the apron and knife scabbard hanging from my designated hook in the line of hooks drilled into the wall below the bulletin board. I listen to the guy's conversation as I don the apron. But it really makes you think, man, Mark says. Like, what if this is all just some virtual reality simulation? Like, what if none of this really is real? I know, man, Kent says. I can't stop thinking about it. Like, we could be in the Matrix right now. I tilt my head to the side, pondering what I'm hearing. Clearly the guys need to lay off the weed. As I knot the tie around my waist, I ponder the merits of drug testing, and then I promptly toss the idea away. I know my employees. If I started drug testing for marijuana, I wouldn't have any workers left. Yeah, Mark says. I mean... I remember the first time I saw The Matrix, like way back when my babysitter was watching it. After that, one time I had deja vu, and I was like, whoa, where's the glitch? What's been rewritten? Dude, Kent says, exactly. 
I cinch my scabbard belt just so, my own thoughts drifting toward the scenario posed in the Matrix, a simulated reality so real that humans aren't aware that they're actually being used as living batteries out in the real world. That was where the movie lost me. Why humans? What makes us such perfect batteries for our evil machine overlords? I know enough about the anatomy of animals to know that one mammal is pretty much the same as the next. Why not use cows? They're larger, and I doubt they would question the reality of their endless simulated fields. I laugh under my breath and shake my head, and then I freeze, an unsettling thought striking me. Every time I've been struck by vertigo, I was remembering something that turned out to be wrong. Turning 39 last year, and then buying the car 10 years ago. At the party, I even experienced deja vu when talking to Kara about getting old. If I tell these guys about it, I'm certain I will blow their minds and leave them convinced that we really are living in a simulation. And possibly that I am the one. I smirk at that thought, then dismiss the whole silly notion. I push through the swinging doors and re-enter the shop floor. I suck in a breath to join the conversation, but before I can get a single word out, the ground lurches, and I have to lean on the stainless steel counter to keep myself from stumbling sideways. A stack of long metal trays slated for the display case clatters onto the tiles. Of course, the floor isn't actually shifting. It's all in my head, but that knowledge doesn't stop me from feeling like I'm on a tiny boat bobbing in choppy waters. What the shit? I grind out, my head bowed and my eyes squeezed shut. One of the guys places a hand on my lower back. I would bet anything it's Kent. He's always been the touchy type. The guys tease that he is an HR complaint waiting to happen. His touch usually would have annoyed me, but at the moment I'm grateful for his grounding presence. Whoa there, Jane, Kent says, his voice low and close. Are you okay? I swallow roughly. The dizziness is abating. I think so, I say. The world has stabilized enough that I risk opening my eyes. Yeah, I'm good. Just low blood sugar, I'm sure. I flash Kent a grateful smile, warmed by the genuine concern written all over his face, and sidestep away. Now that the vertigo has passed, I'm less of a fan of his hand on my body. Mark is still standing at his block, but he has put his knife down, and his knees are bent like he's ready to lunge forward to catch me if I suddenly collapse. Maybe you should sit down, Mark says. My mom is hypoglycemic. She says orange juice helps the best when her blood sugar dips. He points over his shoulder with his thumb. I can run across the street and grab a bottle of OJ from the bakery. I open my mouth, intending to refuse, but then my mom's voice whispers through my mind. You have to take care of yourself, Janie. I nod instead, my eyes suddenly stinging with welling tears. That would be great, I say, my voice hoarse. I clear my throat. Thanks. Mark hustles over to the sink on the side wall and washes his hands, then hurries toward the shop door. Kent retrieves the footstool from the place where he's tucked it under the shelving unit holding oversized jars of spice mixes, and I sit. His hovering makes me self-conscious, and I clear my throat again. So, I say, breaking the awkward silence, did you guys watch The Matrix last night? A crease forms between Kent's brows, and he shakes his head, looking utterly confused. No. We watched Point Break. You know, the one with Keanu Reeves and Patrick Swayze? Now I'm the one with a creased brow. 
Kent leans back against the counter and stares out the front window, chuckling under his breath. Wouldn't it be nuts if you found out someone you thought you knew was really an undercover cop? He glances down at me, his eyebrows rising as his voice gains enthusiasm. I mean, like you, Jane. Like, what if you were secretly an FBI agent planted here to uncover a secret ring of, like, drug smugglers or gunrunners or something? That would totally be crazy, right? I frown, utterly baffled. Yeah, that would be nuts. I shake my head, unable to let the matter drop. You know, I could have sworn you guys were talking about the Matrix when I first got here. The crease is back in Kent's brow, and I can't help but think he looks like a lost puppy. He shakes his head. No, I haven't seen that one since I was a kid. I think I watched it with my babysitter. He nods to himself. Pretty trippy, though. Yeah, I say, studying his face. So far as I can tell, he's being completely genuine. He honestly doesn't remember talking about it. Pretty trippy, I repeat. The bell over the shop door jingles as Mark returns. I thank him for the orange juice and retreat down the back hallway to my office. My knives clang in their scabbard as I sink into my desk chair. What the actual fuck is going on? I mutter, staring at the closed door as though I can see through it and the wall beyond to the two young men on the shop floor. They were talking about the Matrix. I'm certain of it. Just like I was certain I was turning 40. Just like I was certain I bought the Camry 10 years ago. But then I had a vertigo spell, and what I thought I knew no longer matched up with reality. None of this makes any sense. Either something is seriously wrong with the world, or something is seriously wrong with me. Thanks for listening. You've reached the end of this episode of All World Online. Be sure to subscribe to my newsletter or to join my Facebook reader group, Lindsay's Lovely Readers, to ensure you receive updates about the next season. I'll put links to both in the show notes. If you're enjoying this serial, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or wherever you listen. Did you know All World Online has a sister series? It does. The Atlantis Legacy is out in audiobook as well as ebook and paperback through all major and most minor online book retailers. Some secrets are buried for a reason. She's about to uncover the deadliest secret of all. Anxious and reclusive, Cora Blackthorne uses online gaming as her sole tether to the outside world. Due to a condition that makes human touch crippling, she lives her life confined to a small island in the Puget Sound, never accompanying her mother on her tomb-raiding adventures. But when her mom sends home a cryptic SOS in the form of a mysterious package, Cora discovers the shocking truth behind her extraordinary affliction. Her condition isn't an illness. It's a gift, not of this world. Armed with a powerful alien amulet and her mother's journal, Cora heads to Rome on a desperate rescue mission. But on the way, she discovers that a secret society is hot on her trail— and she has no chance of outrunning them. Her only chance is to confront them head-on. A clash within the twisty catacombs beneath Vatican City leaves Cora with a perilous choice. Find her way through an ancient, deadly labyrinth and save her mom, or fail and die. Legacy of the Lost is the first book in the captivating science fiction adventure series, The Atlantis Legacy. 
If you like ancient mysteries, Greek mythology, treasure hunting adventures, and dynamic characters, then you'll love this exhilarating adventure. That's all for now. Until next time.